Okay, looking today at 16 and 17, and it's going to focus on Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh. Really, uh, not a whole lot said, not uh, much depth the text goes into, but we're going to take what we can and do the best we can uh, with it. Now, first of all, before we look into 16 and 17 specifically, probably should have done this already, but, but let's state several overall purposes. What is the overall purpose of this section? The overall purpose of Joshua 13 through 21. The overall purpose of the division of the land. What is it? Well, one of the things that the text is showing us is the text is showing us that God kept... His promises to Abraham. To Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob about giving them the land. God kept His promises. You particularly see this in chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Someone turn there and read that for us. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Okay. That's how this section on the division of the tribes ends. And that section about how it ends shows us a lot of its purpose. Its purpose is to show God has kept His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we'd like to say, God has a good record as a promise-keeping God. That same idea is stated in 23.14. In 23.14, I'm picking up in the middle, it says not one word of all the good words which the Lord, uh, your God, spoke concerning you has failed. All has been fulfilled. Not one of them has failed. So, in all these cases, God is keeping His promises. God is doing what he said as far as giving the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I I don't know in outlining if the best way is to make these a separate number or if it is just to put them as sub-points of this. But what we're going to see with the next few points is God is keeping his promises. God is keeping His promises to various groups. First of all, um, in Jacob's prophecy, remember Jacob's prophecy which we read recently in our Bible reading, daily reading, 
in Genesis 49 as he talks about the fate of the various tribes. Um, and in Genesis 49, in verses 5 through 7, 5 through 7 particularly, we saw that he said Simeon and Levi would be scattered in Israel. And we talked about the other day that Simeon's inheritance was smack dab in the middle of the tribe of Judah. Right there. Right there in the middle. And they had about 17 cities assigned to them. 15 of those cities were also assigned to Judah. So they are kind of scattered. They're going to kind of lose their identity soon. Levi is scattered throughout the land. So we see that Jacob's prophecy, those words are fulfilled. And how many cities of refuge did God promise to give to Israel? Yes, well, I was thinking six when I asked, but you're right that it may have been nine if they were faithful. You see that in Deuteronomy 19, if they'd taken all the land that God had given them. And we're going to see that carried out when we get to Joshua 20. Joshua 20 is going to be a brief chapter, but it's going to relate those six cities of refuge that were given to Israel. So the cities of refuge are mentioned. Also, uh, we see that the Lord is the portion of the tribe of Levi. God said that in the law. God said that among other places in Numbers 18. That Levi is to be, or, or Levi's portion is the Lord Levi, uh, Numbers 18, verse 20, and Deuteronomy 10, verse 9, and that's by no means exhausting all the passages that say that. And when we get to Joshua 21, we're going to see that carried out. So God has kept His promises about the cities of refuge. He's kept His promises to the tribe of Levi. He's fulfilled the word that He spoke through Jacob in His prophecy. And He also kept His promises to the faithful spies. The faithful spies were told that they would have an inheritance. Uh, you see this in um, Numbers um, 14, verse 30, and uh, I think it's verses 36 through 38, and in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1, now that's, that's Deuteronomy 1, 36 through 38, maybe the same with Numbers, but be cautioned, I may have missed it. Joshua is given his inheritance, Caleb is given his inheritance Last time we studied Joshua 4, uh, 6 and 15, and then in Joshua 19, 49 through 51. So all of those things are ways God is keeping His promises of various things. If you want to call this too, we're also going to see, and Paul pointed this out in some of the questions, the seeds of disaster are being sown. 
because they're not driving out the people from the land. You see that in Joshua 13, 13, in 15, 63. We see that in 16, 10, and 17, 12, and 13. We're going to have reason to comment on that more extensively later. But uh, those are just overall purposes of this particular passage, these passages. And I want us, as we struggle to grasp these chapters, I want us to um, um, to get to get down an overall picture of of a why. Now, uh, one of the questions that Paul asked was about uh, you don't have an allotment for Joseph. And who were Ephraim and Manasseh? Who, who were who were they? Faith? Who were Ephraim and Manasseh? Joseph's sons. They were Joseph's sons, and um, you see their birth is recorded in Genesis forty-one. In Genesis forty-eight, um, which is the oldest of these sons? You remember? Manasseh is the oldest which received the greater blessing? Ephraim. Ephraim. Now, you may not tell it with land size, but Ephraim is considered the, the leader of these northern tribes. And we'll illustrate that in just a moment. But uh, Manasseh was the oldest. Ephraim was the youngest. In Genesis 48... When Jacob is 147 years old and he can barely see, kind of like his father Isaac could barely see, he can barely see. And he, he calls in, uh, or, or, or Joseph pre- presents himself before Jacob. And, and uh, Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph appear there. Now, Jacob asks the question, who are these? I don't think it's the idea is that he's never seen Ephraim Manasseh before. And he's been in the land now about 17 years. I think the idea is that this is probably part of some type of a formal adoption service. Who are these? And Jacob gives an answer. These are the children who have been born to me in the land of Egypt. Now, the right hand conveyed the greatest blessing. And the left hand conveyed a lesser blessing. And Joseph has situated his sons before his nearly blind father so that Manasseh is to Jacob's right hand and Ephraim is to Jacob's left hand. But instead of just sticking his hands out, he crosses his hands and puts the right hand upon Ephraim's head and the left hand upon Manasseh's head. Now, Jacob thinks, you know, Dad can't see. He's 147, you know. Uh, he just tries to straighten out his hands. <coughs> but Jacob knows what he's doing. And he said, Manasseh will be a great people, but Ephraim will be greater than he is. And Ephraim was to be in a leadership position among the tribes. Both of these tribes were very significant in Israel. After
after we deal with the three tribes on the other side of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, and then after we deal with the tribe of, of Judah, then Ephraim and Manasseh are now dealt with next. They would be extremely significant in the history of Israel. But uh, the backstory on that is, is, a, is a very good story, very interesting story. Now, um, most of this description of Ephraim in Joshua 16 is a description of their borders. It doesn't mention a lot of their cities. Uh, but let's... Um, why? Yes, go ahead. And yes. Well, I just in reading chapter 18 this time, in verse 5, where it says, They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall stay in its territory in the south, and the house of Joseph shall stay in their territory on the north. I had never noted before. I'd always thought, you know, the seeds of the divided kingdom started in David's time. Uh-huh. But even, I never noticed that even this far back, you know, God is actually referring to the yeah. house of Judah in one context and the rest of Israel in another, which, you know, was some, and Israel was later called Ephraim or Joseph. Yeah. And that even in God's mind, he is already speaking of them kind of in two sections, and I've never noticed that. Yeah, that, that is a good thing. Let's keep our eye open for that, for what Ann is talking about. That there are hints of this division even before the death of Solomon, long before. Let me give you another one that is really stands out. Look in 1 Samuel 11. In 1 Samuel 11, this is in Saul's time, and Saul has just been made king in 1 Samuel 11. And the text tells us... Um, that in verse 8, as Saul is getting his army ready to fight against Jabesh Gilead and uh, Nahash, uh, or, or to defend Jabesh Gilead, to, Nahash is trying to attack the city. In verse 8, 1 Samuel 11, 8, he numbered them in Bezek. And the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So they're making a distinction there before Saul goes to his first battle as king between Israel and Judah. You see some of the same thing in the uh, census of David in uh, 2 Samuel 24, a census that shouldn't have been taken. But you see the same thing there. But that's a good point, Anne. Uh, a very good point that... And let's keep an eye for that because it may be that it's there in a lot more passages than I've recognized. But I know it is there in several of these. But um, in in Joshua 16, let's just, I'm going to try to read, and this may be a very painful process, but I don't feel compelled completely to, I feel like I can put this off on anybody else. But anyway, in, in 16.1, the lot the sons of Joseph, the lot for the sons of Joseph went from the Jordan at Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east into the wilderness 
going up from Jericho through the hill country to Bethel. It went from Bethel to Luz. Now, what do all your translations say there about the relationship between Bethel and Luz? Mine says, in parentheses, that is, Bethel is Luz. Okay, Bethel is Luz. And that is the case, remember, that's the city where Jacob laid on the stone in, in, in Genesis, 8, Genesis 28, and he, he named it Bethel, house of God, but it formerly had been called Luz, the text tells us. So Bethel, which is Luz, it continued to the border of the Archites uh, at Atheroth. It went down westward to the territory of the Japhletites as, uh, as far as the border of the Tower of Beth Horon, even to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. The sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. Now this was the territory of the sons of Ephraim according to their families. The border of their inheritance eastward was uh, Adaroth Adder, as far as the upper Beth Horan. Then the border went westward at uh, Michmathath on the north, and the border turned about eastward at Tanath Shiloh, and continued beyond it to the east of Genoa. It went down from Genoa to Atheroth and to Nara, and then reached Jericho and came out at the Jordan. From Tapua, the border continued westward to the brook of Cana, and it ended at the sea, and that is the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Ephraim according to their families. Together with the cities which were set apart for the sons of Ephraim in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages, but they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in the midst of Ephraim, to this day, they became forced labor. Okay. Okay, let's look at a... Um, the, the, the point was made before, uh, Anne made it, um, maybe Sarah too, maybe... Uh, but, but Ephraim becomes a leader among these tribes. Ephraim becomes a leader and they will be very conscious of their leadership role. Do you remember that twice in the book of Judges that we're going to find Ephraim complaining after a battle is won that they weren't invited before to fight in the battle. Uh, you see that in the case in Judges 8. In Judges 8, verses 1 through 3, where after Gideon has won his battle, the tribe of Ephraim complains that they weren't invited to the battle. And Gideon, Gideon gives a soft answer and it turns away wrath. Jephthah when he is presented with that same kind of argument, he is not nearly so gentle. Maybe a good lesson in this is that you don't mess with a person who's just sacrificed his daughter. And, um, but in Judges chapter 12, what happens is civil war ensues. And many in the tribe of Ephraim are killed. 
But, but the reason that I bring those up is here's a place where Ephraim is way too conscious about their glory and their attention in the midst of this battle. They were leaders among the tribes. They were leaders particularly among the northern tribes. Now, uh, one of you all mentioned that sometimes Ephraim becomes a designation for all the north. After the kingdom divided, it becomes a designation. Now, there's several places you see that. But there is one book where that is done more than any other. Uh, it is not a book that we have talked about a lot this quarter. Uh, but what book does that more than any other? calls attention. It calls Israel just Ephraim. Do any of you know? Hosea. Hosea, exactly. 37 times I counted, I believe, Hosea uses the term Ephraim in reference to these northern tribes. It's not just talking about Ephraim, the tribe. It's talking about the whole group. But they become representative of everybody. You just say Ephraim. And, and that's shorthand for this. So, so I think like uh, Beanie says, 37 times I believe, if I counted correctly, is the number of times that Hosea uses that term. Now, it's not exclusive to that. Um, if you remember a conflict, there's a conflict in Isaiah 7 particularly between the nation of Israel Aram, you see the city of Damascus here. This would be the, the capital at some points in their history of Aram or Syria. And what's happening in 735 BC is Aram is joining with Israel in a battle against Judah to make Judah join an anti-Assyrian alliance. But he says, he calls them Aram and Ephraim. If you look through Isaiah 7, you'll constantly see that, that Ephraim is a designation for these northern tribes. So they were, they were a very powerful tribe. They were very conscious of their position and careful to guard their position. Now, what... I'm going to try to ask this with each of these uh, judge with each of these sections, and sometimes there's not going to be a clear answer, but sometimes there will be. Who would be, and this is subjective a little bit, but who's probably the most famous person from Ephraim in the Old Testament? I know that's a hard question, and and Paul, we just. Throw that in with each time, you know, each question. You know, who's the most famous for this tribe? We're going to ask that about Manasseh in just a second. But, but I would say the most famous person from Ephraim in Old Testament history, certainly the most significant uh, and not in a good way, would, would be Jeroboam. In 1 Kings 11, verse 26, he is said to be 
uh, Jeroboam is said to be from Ephraim. And remember, there were some conflicts between Jeroboam. He was a very industrious man, the Bible says. Uh, he is... Uh, he has a high position working for Solomon, but he and Solomon get at odds. He flees to Egypt for sanctuary. After the division of the kingdom, he comes up, he meets with Rehoboam. They suggest, make the load lighter upon us. And you know Rehoboam's answer. You know, my, I'm going to be worse than my father was. And as a result of that, the kingdom divides. And you have Judah in the south ruled over by a son of David, a descendant of David, and you have Ephraim in the north. And one of the most important cities of Ephraim is Bethel. Uh, like uh, Brad was mentioning a moment ago, Bethel, which is lies in Joshua 16, verse 2. Bethel was one of the most important cities. Remember, it was one of the places that Jeroboam set up the golden calf. He set up a golden calf in Bethel in the south and Dan in the north. Now Dan would be the city that is called here Laish. So this is the city of Dan. And so Bethel in the south to Laish in the north. He takes the extreme northern, extreme southern parts of his territory and sets up golden calves. He says, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. Seems like they would have remembered that didn't go so well for them when they did that with the golden calf in Exodus 32. But what questions do you have on Manasseh uh, or on Ephraim right now? Anything that we can answer? And I know we didn't... Do justice to everything in that text. But Sarah? I had not noticed this before, but so Ephraim gets land, but they also get the cities which were set apart for the sons of Ephraim in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh. I don't know. I didn't look up further where that all happens, but so they get in theirs and then some other cities in Manasseh. Yes. Which is kind of cool. Yes, yes. It, well, it may not have been to Manasseh, but, but yes, because yes, Manasseh's complaining in a moment that they didn't get enough land. But, but, but I know what you're saying. Yes, I know. And it's, it, it, is, it is good to read this. And sometimes when you do read this carefully, you realize all of a sudden you make observations and you think, oh. And, and if you read it three or four times, even, and I know this is harder than some places, you think, oh, I missed that the first reading. And so what Sarah said is good as far as just keeping reading familiar with it that they also received some of what uh, would have been Manasseh's territory. Now we're going to revisit that statement in 1610 that they did not drive out the Canaanites. We're going to revisit that city, uh, that statement in a little while, Lord willing. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 and... Uh, one of the questions that uh, Paul asked is about the daughters of Zelophehad. And let's see something about them here. It says in verse 1, This is the lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. 
to Maker, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan because he was a man of war. So the lot was made for the rest of the sons of Manasseh according to their families, for the sons of Abiezer, and for the sons of Helak, and for the sons of Asriel, and for the sons of Shechem, and for the sons of Hefer, and for the sons of Shemaiah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. However, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. Of course, the Hoglow is a pretty girl's name. <laughs> they came near before Eliezer the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun and before the leaders saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So according to the command of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Then... Thus there fell ten portions to Manasseh besides the lands of Gilead and Bashan which is beyond the Jordan because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons and the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. Okay. Now, uh, verses 3 through 6 deal with these daughters of Zelophehad. We're told their father had no sons, but only daughters. And who wants to finish this story? Where do we read more of these ladies? And um, what instruction was given concerning them? Sarah, go ahead. Trying to look for room on my board here. I'm gonna, but go ahead. So later on, um, the uh, the rest of the tribe of Manasseh, they're like, "Hey, when these girls get married, the land is gonna go away. It's gonna okay. move out of the out of our tribe, and that's just not fair." And so they checked with God and said, "All right, so now you you girls have to marry within the tribe." Yes. And yes. that's the land stays there, but your father's name is still preserved. Okay. What Sarah has related is in Numbers 36. Um, they must marry within the tribe. Now, there had been a previous step in Numbers 27 where they were allowed an inheritance. Usually the inheritance is passed to sons. And, and some of this becomes clear through these cases. I, I, I don't know some of these things I wouldn't have necessarily thought about had it not been for this. But, but look, uh, look in Numbers 27 and let's just say a few words about this. Uh, but the daughters of Zelophehad, and, and their, their genealogy is given in Numbers 27. And the names of the daughters are given. And verse 2 says, They stood before Eliezer the priest, 
and before the leaders of all and all the congregation, the doorway of the tent of meeting, and they explained their case. They said, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah. He died in his own sin, and he had no son. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from the fam from um, among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our fathers. So they bring up this case. Our father died. Father didn't engage in the rebellion of Korah. But he died for his own sin. Why shouldn't we receive an inheritance? Why should our father's name die out? Well, when Moses hears this, he doesn't give an answer. Yes or no. What he does in verse 5 Moses brought their case before the Lord. Doesn't give a yes, doesn't give a no. He inquires of God. God answers in verse 7 through 11. And says, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statement. You shall give them a hereditary possession. And he talks then, If a man dies and has no son, then you give the inheritance to the daughter. Verse 8. If he has no daughter, you give it to his brothers. In verse 9. If he has no brothers, you give it to his father's brothers. But, but God instructs. So they come to Moses with a question. They don't really have any kind of rule or law or instruction from God. They don't have any precedent that they have taken to God before. They don't give an answer. They just inquire of God. They wait for what the Lord says. They wait for the Lord's word. And when the Lord says it, that's final. And then the same way, and the same thing happens in Numbers 36. They come with that question and um, they, they go to the Lord and the Lord gives the answer to the question. So, yes, very, very good. Um, the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, they get, it, it ends out, they get a lot more attention than any of the guys in the tribe of Manasseh. So, uh, but any questions there, anything to ask about right there? Thus there fell ten portions to Manasseh. What is that kind of talking about? It must have been some kind of division of the land that I am not completely familiar with. You know, we divide lands up in, in towns and counties and in, in, in regions and, and, and there must be some kind of a division like that is the way I'm taking it, Sarah. But they certainly have more than ten cities that are designated to them. Now, who would be the probably the most famous person from Manasseh in the Old Testament? I introduce it here because it's going to tie with a couple of things we just read. My guess would be that it's Gideon. Mm -hmm. 
Look at Judges 6. Judges 6. In Judges 6, verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said, Go if this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. So Gideon is from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, also, you see that not only is he from the tribe of Manasseh, but this army he raises is largely from the tribe of Manasseh as well. Verse 35, Judges 6, verse 35. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they were called together to follow him, and sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So, Joshua from Manasseh, his army is largely from Manasseh. Now, did you notice his genealogy in verse 11? In Judges 6, verse 11, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezerite. In verse 24, uh, to this day, uh, Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, named it the Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezerites. In, in, in Judges 8, verse 2, when Ephraim complained, he said, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Now, I hope you noticed that name in Joshua 17, verse 2. Joshua 17, verse 2, according to the families for the sons of Abiezer. So here is Manasseh, here, excuse me, here is Gideon from a prominent family within the tribe of Manasseh. Okay. But I would say Gideon is the most famous person from this tribe in the Old Testament. Now, there are a couple of cities that that stand out as far as uh, belonging to Manasseh. And Paul asked that. First of all, did, did any of you have an answer to his question? What cities or territories stand out in verses 7 through 11? Do you notice any of them? We encounter them in other places. Ditto was one. She okay. Another one. What was that? She and Endor. Okay. Yes. Very good. Very good. Those are uh, three I thought of. Let's let's look at Shechem first. We talked about Jeroboam being the most famous person from Ephraim. There are three capitals of Israel throughout their history. The first capital is Shechem. First First Kings. 1225. He is living in Shechem. He lives in Shechem. Later, the capital is said to be Tirzah. 
Here's what's mentioned again in Song of Solomon. I think that's in 1 Kings 14. But most of the history of Israel, the capital is in Samaria. And that begins in the days of Ahab, excuse me, of Omri in 1 Kings 16, 21 through 28. All three of those cities were in Manasseh. Now Ephraim was the most prominent tribe, but all three of the capitals are in this land. The only one mentioned in this particular case is, is Shechem, but that is one of their... Uh, one of their very important cities. And we have seen before the renewing of the covenant there uh, in Joshua chapter 8. The renewing uh, of the covenant building the altar to the Lord. Um, now, um, let's go to the other cities. Indoor. Indoor is mentioned in Joshua 17, verse 11. And, and boy, what, what is Indoor famous for? You, you mentioned that is a city you recognize elsewhere. What is it famous for? I did not catch that. Okay, it's only, it's only mentioned one other time. <coughs> That's the yeah. <laughs> The wicked witch. Uh, no, but she's called a medium... Um, in most of the newer translations, but she's doing something and consulting the dead. And uh, but that's in First Samuel twenty-eight, verse seven. I think. Indoor is only mentioned like three times in the Old Testament. And but that witch of Indoor or that medium at Indoor, where Saul inquires of when the Lord will answer him. That is uh, that is one of the times. Now, how about Megiddo? How about Megiddo? That one's mentioned as well in verse eleven. Solomon built a fort or something there. Solomon okay. Solomon built something there. I feel like it was a military place. Yeah, yeah in first it's First Kings ten, I think. Let's look. First Kings. 10. Well, I say that. I thought it was 1 Kings 10. Uh, but, yes, yeah, Solomon does something. Someone who has a concordance on your... Okay, it's 1 first, first Kings 9. 1 Kings 9, 15. This is the account of the forced labor which Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Now also, Megiddo will play a part in the Bible in stories like um, in Judges chapter 5, we're going to find that the battle of Deborah and Barak is going to be in this area. I think it's around verse 19 that that is mentioned. Uh, Joshua 9, 5 verse 19. Um, also, Josiah is going to be killed here in 2 Kings 23 and verse 30. He's killed at Megiddo. 
Now that becomes, it's more famous though because of its mention in Revelation in Revelation 16, the Mount of Megiddo, Armageddon, um, but it seems to be the, the, the imagery of Revelation is picking up on that um, imagery from the Old Testament about this being an important battlefield. Now, verses 12 and 13, we say the seeds of disaster were being sown because they don't drive out the nation. The sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when the sons of Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. So they don't drive them out. And they complain about it. There's an extended narrative about this. Verse 14. The sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one portion for inheritance? Since I am a numerous, since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed. Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bashan and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people and have great power, and you shall have... Uh, not shall, shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For through it is a forest you shall clear, and to its furthest borders it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanite, even though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So Manasseh complains, we have more land. Joshua says, and we're, many, and we're many people. He says, if you have so many people, you have uh, so many strong people, then take your land. Go out and cut down the forest. What is their complaint? Yeah, yeah, they're stronger than we are. They have iron chairs. It sounds a lot like the first spies who came back after searching the land, doesn't it? Numbers 13 and 14. Sounds like those... Oh, these people, they've got iron chariots. What, 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 do, you, what do you mean? Um, Joshua says, you're numerous and great people. If you're so strong, so many, clear out the land. Um, this problem that they are sowing the seeds of now will fully manifest itself in the time of their children. Sometimes, if we don't fight the Lord's battles in our day, we leave our children to fight a stronger and more powerful foe. And that's what Israel did. They failed to drive out these nations and drive out these peoples. They leave them in the land as a result of the interaction, they intermarry with them and end up worshiping their God. Because they didn't fight the battle as they should have 
through trust in the Lord in their day, as a result, they leave a more powerful foe to their son. Now, we may have more to say about that. Uh, Paul has already given you some questions on 18, so hold on to those. And we'll probably get into 18 and at least a little bit into 19, uh, Lord willing, on uh, uh, Wednesday night. But uh, any more questions that you all have? Okay, thank you very much.